Part five of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part five The Mummies at Bordeaux. It was because I was tired of churches and picture galleries, of fairs and markets, of the strange babble of foreign tongues and the thin English of the guide book, that I begged so hard to be taken to see the mummies. To me, the name of a mummy was as a friend's name. As one Englishman travelling across a desert seeks to find another of whom he has heard in that far land, so I sought to meet these mummies who had cousins at home, in the British Museum, in dear, dear England. My fancy did not paint mummies for me, apart from plate-glass cases, camphor, boarded galleries, and kindly curators and I longed to see them as I longed to see home, and to hear my own tongue spoken about me. I was consumed by a fever of impatience for the three days which had to go by before the coming of the day on which the treasures might be visited. My sisters, who were to lead me to these delights, believed too that the mummies would be chiefly interesting on account of their association with Bloomsbury. Well, we went, I in my best blue silk frock, which I insisted on wearing to honour the occasion, holding the hand of my sister, and positively skipping with delicious anticipation. There was some delay about keys, during which my excitement was scarcely to be restrained. Then we went through an arched doorway, and along a flagged passage, the old man who guided us explaining volubly in French as we went. "'What does he say?' "'He says they are natural mummies.' What does that mean? They are not embalmed by man, like the Egyptian ones, but simply by the peculiar earth of the churchyard where they were buried. The words did not touch my conception of the glass cases and their good-natured guardian. The passage began to slope downward. A chill air breathed on our faces, bringing with it a damp, earthy smell. Then we came to some narrow stone steps. Our guide spoke again. What does he say? We are to be careful. The steps are slippery and mouldy. I think, even then, my expectation still was of a long, clean gallery, filled with the white light of a London noon, shed through high skylights on Egyptian treasures. But the stairs were dark, and I held my sister's hand tightly. Down we went, down, down. What does he say? We are under the church now. These are the vaults. We went along another passage, the damp, mouldy smell increasing, and the clasp of my sister's hand grew closer and closer. We stopped in front of a heavy door barred with iron, and our guide turned a big reluctant key in a lock that grated. Le voilà, he said, throwing open the door and drawing back dramatically. We were in the room before my sisters had time to see cause for regretting that they had brought me. The vision of dry boards and white light and glass cases vanished, and in its stead I saw this. A small vault, as my memory serves me, about fifteen feet square, with an arched roof, from the centre of which hung a lamp that burned with a faint blue light, and made the guide's candle look red and lurid. The floor was flagged like the passages, and was as damp and chill. Round three sides of the room ran a railing, 
and behind it, standing against the wall, with a ghastly look of life in death, were about two hundred skeletons. Not white clean skeletons hung on wires, like the one you see at the doctor's, but skeletons with the flesh hardened on their bones, with their long dry hair hanging each side of their brown faces, where the skin in drying had drawn itself back from their gleaming teeth and empty eye-sockets. Skeletons draped in mouldering shreds of shrouds and grave-clothes, their lean fingers still clothed with dry skin, seemed to reach out towards me. There they stood, men, women, and children, knee-deep in loose bones collected from the other vaults of the church, and heaped round them. On the wall, near the door, I saw the dried body of a little child hung up by its hair. I don't think I screamed, or cried, or even said a word. I think I was paralysed with horror, but I remember presently going back up those stairs, holding tightly to that kindly hand, and not daring to turn my head, lest one of those charnel-house faces should peep out at me from some niche in the damp wall. It must have been late afternoon, and in the hurry of dressing for the table d'hote, my stupor of fright must have passed unnoticed, for the next thing I remember is being alone in a large room, waiting as usual for my supper to be sent up. For my mother did not approve of late dinners for little people, and I was accustomed to have bread and milk alone, while she and my sisters dined. It was a large room, and very imperfectly lighted by the two wax candles in silver candlesticks. There were two windows and a curtained alcove, where the beds were. Suddenly my blood ran cold. What was behind that curtain? Beds. Yes, whispered something that was I, and yet not I. But suppose there are no beds there now. Only mummies, mummies, mummies. A sudden noise. I screamed with terror. It was only the door opening to let the waiter in. He was a young waiter, hardly more than a boy, and had always smiled kindly at me when we met, though hitherto our intercourse had not gone farther. Now I rushed to him and flung my arms round him, to his immense amazement, and the near ruin of my bread and milk. He spoke no English, and I no French, but somehow he managed to understand that I was afraid, and afraid of that curtained alcove. He set down the bread and milk, and he took me in his arms, and together we fetched more candles, and then he drew back the awful curtain, and showed me the beds lying white and quiet. If I could have spoken French, I should have said, Yes, but how do I know it was all like that just now, before you drew the curtain back? As it was, I said nothing, only clung to his neck. I hope he did not get into any trouble that night for neglected duties, for he did not attempt to leave me until my mother came back. He sat down with me on his knee, and petted me and sang to me under his breath, and fed me with the bread and milk when, by and by, I grew calm enough to take it. All good things be with him wherever he is. I like best to think of him in a little hotel of his own, a quiet little country inn, standing back from a straight road, bordered with apple-trees and poplars. There are wooden benches outside the door, and within a whitewashed kitchen, where a plump, rosy-faced woman is busy with many cares, 
never busy enough, however, to pass the master of the house without a loving word or a loving look. I like to believe that now he has little children of his own, who hold out their arms when he opens the door, and who climb upon his knees clamouring for those same songs which he sang, out of the kindness of his boyish heart, to the little frightened English child such a long, long time ago. The mummies of Bordeaux were the crowning horror of my childish life. It is to them, I think, more than to any other thing, that I owe nights and nights of anguish and horror, long years of bitterest fear and dread. All the other fears could have been effaced, but the shock of that sight branded it on my brain, and I never forgot it. For many years I could not bring myself to go about any house in the dark, and long after I was a grown woman I was tortured in the dark watches by imagination and memory, who rose strong and united, overpowering my will and my reason as utterly as in my baby days. It was not till I had two little children of my own that I was able to conquer this mortal terror of darkness, and teach imagination her place under the foot of reason and the will. My children, I resolved, should never know such fear and to guard them from it I must banish it from my own soul. It was not easy, but it was done. It is banished now, and my babies, thank God, have never known it. It was a dark cloud that overshadowed my childhood, and I don't believe my mother ever knew how dark it was, for I could not tell anyone the full horror of it while it was over me, and when it had passed I came from it as one who has lived long years in an enchanter's castle, where the sun is darkened always, might come forth into the splendour of noontide. Such a one breathes God's sweet air, and beholds the free heavens with joyous leaps of the heart, but he does not speak soon, nor lightly, of what befell in the dark, in the evil days, in the castle of the enchanter. End of Part 5